and already feel the weight of its indictments and the ways that we have fallen short, not just in the last week or day, but over the course of our lives. And so even now, as we open this up, we pray that you would come to us, make, it, make the message clear to us, make the gospel clear to us, and all of its comforts. And we pray that you would change us and conform us to the image of your Son. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you again to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2013, there was a 53-year-old Ohio man who was um, arrested or who actually was um, pled guilty to kidnapping, assaulting, and imprisoning three young women over a period of about 11 years. Took them when they were young girls, 2002, 2003, 2004, imprisoned them in his own house, and he kept them in his own home for over a decade before they finally escaped. And after he was caught and... Um, he was taken away, a grand jury indicted him on 977 counts. It included 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 of sexual assault, six of felonious assault, three of child endangerment, and two of aggravated murder. And he pled guilty to all of these charges, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole, and then they added 1,000 years to that. He would never again see the light of day, and, and indeed, when he began to serve his sentence, he, he took his own life. But at his sentencing hearing, he gave this long, meandering statement trying to explain himself, why he did what he did. And he gave these tortured rationalizations for what he did. And among other things, he said this. I'm just going to quote to you what he said. He said, I'm not a monster. I have an addiction. I couldn't control my addiction. I just want to be clear. I just want to clear the record. I'm not a monster. I preyed on them because of my sexual addiction. As God is my witness, I never beat these women. I never tortured them. I was addicted to porn. I just want to apologize to everyone who was touched by these incidents. But I also want to mention that there was harmony in that home. I was a good person. Now, you heard that last part right. After all of his crimes, after all of the horror and pain that he admitted to, after all the grief that he caused these women and their families, after all that, he concludes, I was a good person. Now, if you want to put a face and a name on the depths of depravity that a person can sink to, all you have to say is the name Ariel Castro, the man who committed these deeds. And for all that divides us in our society... Liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, Christian Jews. For everything that divides us, here's one thing everybody could agree on. That is unmitigated evil. Clear as the nose on your face. Virtually everybody else can see that what he did was wrong. And yet he thought, I was a good person. How is it that Ariel Castro can't see the evil that is clear to everyone else? How can a guy overlook the depravity when it is so plain? 
The reason that he couldn't see it is because he didn't want to see it. Every human being by nature has the ability to clearly see the errors of others while overlooking and looking past the evil in their own life. Every person, not just people who are guilty of great atrocities like Ariel Castro, every person is gifted at the art of self-rationalizing our behavior. And here's what rationalizing is. To rationalize is to allow my mind to find reasons to excuse what my conscience knows is wrong. That's, that's all that it is. And you can do it on a big scale or you can do it on a small scale, but that's what rationalizing is. And it usually involves, um, I don't know, one of three things. Perhaps denying that the evil in question is actually evil. You can do that and rationalize it away. You can say that the evil in question is not as bad as what other people do. And because it's not as bad as what other people do, then it's really not that bad at all. You can claim that your good deeds cancel out your evil deeds. Like Castro did. Oh, I treated them so well. And whatever bad I did was canceled out by how well I treated them otherwise. And so people tend to use either or all of those strategies to rationalize and justify bad behavior. Ways in which their conscience are already pointing to them that they're wrong. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody in this room is guilty of gross atrocities like Ariel Castro. But I do wonder if you recognize any of the strategies that people like him use to justify themselves. You don't have to be guilty of a gross atrocity to be guilty of rationalizing bad behavior. Have you ever found reasons to excuse what your conscience knows is wrong? And you begin to tell yourself those reasons and to believe those reasons. Despite what the word of God says. Perhaps you've said something to yourself like this. Yeah, I know she's not my wife, but what's the harm in a little playful flirting at work? Most people I know are doing worse than me, so what's the big deal? Besides, flirting's not really adultery, right? No, she, he's not my husband, but I sure like the attention he gives me. What's the harm in entertaining his compliments? I need it for my self-esteem. Besides, my husband is, is falling down on the job here, so I got to get this from somewhere. Yeah, I look at pornography from time to time, but I confess it to my accountability group whenever I do, so it's all good. Or maybe this is the worst one. I'm not going to get all worked up about sinful choices I make. I just need to embrace the grace of the gospel and know that no matter what I do, I'm accepted by Christ. If God accepts me the way that I am, then I need to accept me and all my sin the way that I am. And so you can find some mitigating circumstance or maybe some tortured theological justification to excuse attitudes and behavior that your conscience knows is wrong. And with each one of those excuses, the standard of holiness, which is way up here, you end up lowering to where you already are, way down here. And in your heart, you say, you know, I've got way too much sin, basically, to get with God's program. So he's going to have to come down to me and get with my program. But the problem with that is God's not ever going to get with that program. Ever. Ever. 
And anyone who deceives himself into thinking that he will get with the program of unholiness and sexual immorality, anybody who thinks that is deceiving themselves. And if you deceive yourself that way, you will go lower and lower and lower until you are so far off that nobody can even recognize if you're a Christian anymore. And you will completely have forgotten the solemn words of Hebrews 12, 14, which say, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And you won't be the exception, despite rationalizations. The great danger of rationalizing sin is in that way is that if you suppress your conscience like that long enough, you eventually won't be able to tell good from evil. Every time you rationalize sin, you harden your heart and put a callus on your conscience. And you put your soul in mortal danger. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. The reason I'm opening up talking about rationalizing sin and rationalizing sexual immorality, because that's exactly the situation that Paul's addressing here. Last time when we were in the first half of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul was talking about that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he talks about, he includes among the unrighteous the sexually immoral. And now he's kind of turning here and he's looking at them and he's saying, look, there was sexual immorality that was a part of your previous life, but there are some of you in this church who are indulging in sexual immorality right now. Look what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? You know what Paul has just revealed to us there? He's revealed that there are some men in the church at Corinth who are going and visiting prostitutes. And as you unpack this passage, you find out that they were going and visiting these prostitutes and giving theological justifications for their behavior and saying that it's totally permitted. There is a theological rationale for why we're going and visiting these, these prostitutes. So they're not only committing sexual immorality, but they're also explaining their immorality away as if it were no big deal. And so they're rationalizing their sin, their sin by appealing to Christian freedom and to what they think the purpose of the body is. Paul confronts those rationalizations with three truths, and this is where we're going. He says this. He says, Christian freedom has limits in verse 12. The resurrection has implications in verses 13 through the first part of 18. And he says the body has a purpose verses 18 to 20. So Christian freedom has limits. The resurrection has implications and the body has a purpose. So the first thing here, Christian freedom has limits is verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now at first blush, that kind of does look like a statement about Christian freedom. It says, after all, all things are lawful for me. Twice. And probably many of you have heard this text taught um, that this is a text about Christian freedom. We've been freed from the law. We now have freedom in Christ. 
And so that's the meaning of the text. And Paul's exploring the, you know, what, what Christian freedom is all about. But a closer look reveals that that interpretation doesn't really make much sense. The key to this text is actually in the punctuation. Many of you noticed, if you're looking at the ESV or maybe the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV, you'll notice that there's quotation marks around all things are lawful for me. Why are those quotation marks there? Well, the reason is because Paul is quoting slogans that the Corinthians used to justify their bad behavior. What Paul does throughout this passage is to quote their slogan, their rationalization for bad behavior. He quotes their slogan and then he refutes their slogans with gospel truths. And so the first slogan that he refutes is stated twice in verse 12. It's not Paul saying this, it's them saying this. They're saying, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want, essentially. Everything's permissible for me. So on the surface of it, maybe what they're saying doesn't sound that bad. All things are lawful to me. Um, perhaps there's something true about that. Paul uses language sort of like this, doesn't he? Perhaps the Corinthians were simply riffing on something they heard that Paul say before. After all, doesn't Paul say in the book of Romans, sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law? Doesn't Paul say things like that? You're not under law? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law? Um, Romans chapter 7 and verses 4 and 6, therefore my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. But now we have been released from the law having died to that by, by which we were bound. So when the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me, maybe they're just sort of riffing on something they heard Paul say. He, after all, he said, we're not under the law. We've died to the law. Doesn't, in some sense, the law is not over us anymore. And so maybe they're using Paul's law-free gospel to justify going and visiting these prostitutes. And if they're doing that, they're turning Paul's gospel into a license to sin. Now, of course, that's not what Paul meant when he said those kinds of things about not being under the law. Even in Romans 6 and 7, where he said that, he says that we're bound by grace to serve in the Spirit. So it's not a license to sin, but the Corinthians apparently were treating it as if it were a license. And so there's nothing new under the sun. We, the human heart sinfully pushes against God's commands and God's laws and God's norms. Our culture embraces the same kind of, of license. Maybe not in the words, all things are lawful for me, but certainly with, in the, with the sentiment that everything is permissible to us sexually. That's what our culture teaches. The only two limitations that our culture knows on sexual behavior is you can't hurt anybody and everybody has to be the right age. That's it. Those are the only two taboos our culture knows. Everything else under the sun is permitted in terms of our culture. And if you try to put any other limitation on sexual behavior, you're considered a puritanical. That's the spirit of the age. And it's not that different from the spirit of Paul's age and, and from what was affecting the church in Corinth so that some of these men were going and visiting these prostitutes. Well, Paul's response is pretty straightforward. He confronts this attitude of the, these Corinthians who are doing this with two statements. They say, all things are lawful for me. Paul says, but not all things are profitable. 
They say all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, Paul is saying, whatever your idea of Christian freedom is, there's limitations on that. And your, your Christian freedom, whatever it is, is limited by love and by lordship. How do you, where do we see that? Well, he says not all things are profitable. And that means that Christian freedom is limited by love for our brothers because that word for profitable is used two other times in this book. And in both places, it describes something that has to do with benefiting other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to build them up and to edify them. You can go look at it in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 23 and 24 and 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7. So the question is not merely, is this or that activity okay for me to do? The question is not, what am I free to do? The question is, will this or that activity be a help or a hindrance to my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the question. And if something is a hindrance to a brother or sister in Christ, then you shouldn't do it. So when you're contemplating what the Lord's will is for any given issue, you have to ask yourself the love question. What would love have me do? Not just what am I permitted to do, but what will build up my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? Love will not have you pushing your brother or sister into sin. So Paul's confronting their idea of Christian freedom, saying your whatever your freedom is, it's limited by love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So freedom is limited by love for brothers, but freedom is also limited by the lordship of Christ because Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. I think the ESV says, I won't be dominated by anything. By which I think Paul is trying to say, look, sex is a good gift from God, but it becomes corrupted when your desire for it becomes greater than your desire to submit that gift to the lordship of Jesus. And the lordship of Jesus means, among other things, that that gift is only to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. To pursue it outside of marriage is to be mastered by sin and by vice. And so as a Christian, you've sworn allegiance to, to King Jesus. And he will suffer no rivals. None. He wants to be chief in your affections. That means he has to be your master and you cannot serve anyone or anything or any desire above him. So Paul's contemplating this idea of Christian freedom. Christian freedom does not mean that you're free to do whatever you want sexually. It does not mean that. Paul said, even though Paul said from time to time, that we're no longer under the law, he also clearly says that, he, that we're not without law in our lives. In this very book, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, Paul said, to those who are without law, I became as without law, meaning to those who are not Jews, I became as, like I, as if I weren't a Jew, though I'm not really without the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those who are without the law. Paul said he was under the law of Christ, which means we are under the law of Christ. So yes, Paul would agree that you and I have been set free from the Jewish law, but that means that we've been set free to become slaves of Jesus and what he wants for us. And his will governs our lives, including our sexual lives. 
Christian freedom does not set you free to do whatever you want. It sets you free to be a slave of Jesus. When you rationalize sin, including sexual sin, you are not serving Christ. When you say to yourself, I'm going to do this sinful thing because I have Christian freedom, you're rebelling against the lordship of Christ and submitting yourself to that thing that Christ died to deliver you from. And your sin becomes the object of your affection and not Jesus. And that's why you have to construct all these intellectual defenses against your own conscience, which is condemning you instead of instructing you. So have you ever been in this position before? When it comes to sexual sin, when it comes to any sin. I think all of us have been there before. And Paul is trying to say, you don't need to start, you don't need to start believing your own line of bull. Okay? You have got to believe the word of God and what it says about sexual holiness and what it says about Christian freedom. And Paul says in verse 12, Christian freedom has limits. But he also says, verse 13, that the resurrection has implications. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, you have a quotation mark at the beginning of this verse and a close quotation mark right after the stomach is for food. Um, for reasons I don't have time to go in right here, go into right here, I want to say that that translation's great, but the quotation mark is in the wrong place, okay? The close quotation mark, you can put a little X on it right there. Close quotation mark should be, but God will do away with both of them after that phrase. So it's not Paul saying uh, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. That's a Corinthian slogan. That is a, another justification for the bad behavior of going and visiting these prostitutes. Now, how is it a justification for that bad behavior? Well, basically they're saying if you've got it, use it. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. You have a stomach, your stomach's made for food to be put into it. That's obviously what stomachs are designed for, right? So eat food. Obviously that's what a stomach is for. He's making an analogy between our digestive system and its obvious purposes and our reproductive system and its obvious purposes. If a stomach is made for food, sexual organs are made for sex. Use it. Use it for its obvious purpose. So they're making an argument about what the purpose of the body is. So obviously we're supposed to be using our bodies this way. If you've got it, use it. But they're also saying use it before you lose it. Because they say this, God will do away with both of them. What does that mean? What that means is they think, well, look, it's just our bodies. What eventually happens to our bodies? They die. Who is the one that put the curse of death upon the world? Well, God did. God's going to take away your body eventually. You'll die one day. You'll go into the ground. Your body will disintegrate into the dust. God's going to do away with both of them. He's going to do away with stomachs and foods. He's going to do away with your bodies, your sexual organs. What difference does it make about our bodies? And so the Corinthians believe that, that our bodies are only temporary anyway, and so they're morally insignificant. And their problem was that they were more influenced by Plato than by Paul. 
They had imbibed the spirit of their age. It was a kind of dualism that disdained the physical world for this higher knowledge of wisdom and spiritual existence. So what does Paul do? He looks at him and he says, wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. You say that the body is, you know, the stomach is for food. Food is for the stomach. Stomach's for food. Therefore, the body is for immorality. The body is not for immorality. Wrong. Your body is for the Lord, verse 13. And the Lord is for the body. Paul says, if you think that God made your body for sexual immorality, you couldn't be more in error. God made you and your body to be under the lordship of Christ. You and your body belong to him, not to sexual immorality. Not only is your body made for the Lord, he says, the Lord is for your body. Now think about this. In what sense is the Lord for your physical body? Well, he explains it in verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. What are the Corinthians saying? Oh, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. God's going to destroy our bodies. That's the ultimate destiny of our bodies. Paul says, do you know the gospel? God raised the Lord Jesus' body from the dead. Why did he do that? Because he's going to raise your body from the dead. You think your body stays in the grave? You think anybody's body stays in the grave? There's a resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed every week. He will judge the living and the dead. We will all be raised up and there will be a separation, but we will be in bodies. Your body does not stay dead. Your body comes to life and if you're a believer, it goes into everlasting blessedness. God not only raised the Lord, he will also raise us up by his power, which means he is for your body. Your body is not morally indifferent to God. Romans 8, 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. We must never say that God only cares about our soul or our spirit and that he cares nothing about our body, as if our body is this other thing that's not us. Our body is us, and the center of New Testament hope for the future is that God will raise our physical bodies from the dead, and it will be a body that is every bit as physical as your physical body is now, minus the sin and minus the corruption. Paul says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And he uses that word members, which is a Greek term that refers to a body part. He's basically saying your physical body is a part of the body parts of Christ. And it indicates a kind of a gross violation of holiness, if that's true. To take away the members of Christ's body and to make them members of a prostitute, that, that's grotesque. It's like cutting off one of Christ's limbs and joining it to a harlot. You're supposed to wince when you think about joining Christ's body to something unholy, it's unthinkable. That's why Paul uses the strongest language possible. May it never be. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a 
Harlot? No. May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. That's the quotation from Genesis 2, isn't it? There's a deeper meaning to the sexual union according to Genesis 2. The two will become one flesh. But he who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 to show that there is more to the physical union than just the physical event. The union of bodies is supposed to affect the consummation of a marriage covenant. But where there is no covenant, there is only the desecration of the holy. There is a taking of a man who belongs to the Lord and putting him in union with the unholy. It's not a marriage, it is fornication. And so what does Paul say in verse 18? Flee immorality. Flee from it. You don't take the holy and join it to the unholy. You flee from it. He doesn't say resist it. He says to flee, just like he told Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Don't resist. Run from it. Don't put yourself in the position where your resolve might be weakened and you might be tempted to sin. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You flee. So that's the Christian sexual norm. Chastity outside of marriage, fidelity within marriage. Do with your body now what you will be doing in the resurrection, which is glorifying God. Flee from immorality. So Paul is saying, look, you say your body's not important because you're going to die one day. God doesn't care about bodies. No, the resurrection has implications. God's going to raise you up. Therefore, what you do with your body now matters. Christian freedom has limits. The resurrection has implications. Finally, verse 18, the body has a purpose. Look what Paul says in that second part of verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice about that phrase. Number one, the word other is not in the original text. And some of your translations may even have the word other in italics. And the reason that it is is because the translators don't know how to make sense of this phrase without adding the word other. It doesn't make sense to them. And so what they do end up doing is making it sound like sexual sin is not like any other sin. It's some sort of sin in a special category all by itself. But there's really no justification for adding this word linguistically. And the phrase makes perfect sense if you understand that Paul is actually quoting another Corinthian slogan here. This is not Paul's words. He's quoting the Corinthians. It's another justification. So they are the ones who are saying this. Cross out the word other. They're saying every sin that a man commits is outside the body. If you're reading the Christian Standard Bible, you'll notice that it is in quotation marks. They're the ones saying that every sin that a man commits is outside the body. So what does that mean to say that every sin is outside of the body? Well, that phrase, outside of the body, means apart from the body. If that is correct, then the Corinthians are saying that sin only occurs apart from the body. It can only occur apart from the body. Meaning, because the body is so irrelevant to God, 
because our bodies end up dying and going away and what we are essentially is spiritual beings. Um, because that's true, you can't, not, you can't use your body to commit sin. Sin is only possible on the level of your motive and intention or something that's going on in your soul or your heart. But sin's not defined by anything that you could do with your body. So basically, as in verse 14, they're saying that the body is morally insignificant to God. They would, the Corinthians would say, these guys who are justifying themselves on this basis would say, we can eat with what we like, go to bed with whom we like, because all these things are done with the body, and it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Can't use your body to sin. Sin, every sin that a person commits is apart from the body. So they're, they're living out and rationalizing their sin based not on biblical truth, but on errors from the culture. It's like a husband saying to his wife, a wife who just found out about his adultery. Well, I committed adultery with this other woman, but I love you. Like, as long as my heart's okay, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Nobody accepts that, right? That's the justification, though. Paul confronts that idea head on. The Corinthians say that you can't use your body to commit sin. Paul says, wrong. Your body can be used to sin. Look at the next part of verse 18. But the immoral man, the one who goes and visits the harlot, sins against his own body, which means not only is the physical body used in sexual sin, it is also violated in some sense. It is a sin against his own body. In what sin is it a sin against the body to do this? Well, look at verse 19. He explains, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Paul's getting in their face at this point. Okay, notice what he says here. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then God dwells in you. If God dwells in you, then you are a temple. And Paul is saying something that would have absolutely blown their minds at this point. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's not just your soul that's a temple. It's not just your heart that's a temple. It's your physical body that is a temple of the Holy Spirit because your body is you and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, your body. Your body is a part of what's being sanctified by the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. You are sinning against God's dwelling place when you sin sexually. That's what Paul is saying. You sin against the body when you sin sexually. This is Paul getting into the Corinthians' face and getting into our faces and saying, you think your body doesn't matter to God? Do you have any idea who you are and what God is doing in you at all? Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. And now, and now get the full force of the last part of verse 20. You've been bought with a price, which means Jesus died for you on the cross. He died to pay for your sins. He bought you. He owns you, all of you, body, soul, and spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, Southern Baptists often use this verse as a proof text for not drinking alcohol and not smoking. Maybe that's a good idea. 
That's not what this verse is about. This verse is about the use of the body for sex. Glorifying God with your body means glorifying God with your sexual life. God's purpose for your body is glory. God's purpose for your body sexually is also glory. But the only way to glorify God with your body sexually is to enjoy that gift within the covenant of marriage. Any sexual congress outside of marriage, either with another person, with yourself, or whatever, is a failure to glorify God with your body. Your physical body is not irrelevant in God's moral economy. Your soul is not the only thing about you that is redeemed and eternal. Your body is too. And so God wants you to use your body sexually to glorify him. Do you see how far-reaching the implications of that are? The question that you're asking yourself about what can I do or not do sexually is not what am I free to do? The question is, how can I glorify God with my body? How can I use my body to point to the glories of the covenant of marriage and therefore to the glories of the covenant that Christ made with his bride? How can I avoid everything that falls short of glorifying God with my body? Do you see the point here? Glorify God with your body. That is our duty before him. It's nothing less than that. So take a look at your life at this point, and you run everything through that filter. Am I glorifying God with my body when I do X? Am I glorifying God with my body when I do Y? Am I glorifying God with my body when I think about this? That's the real question. Paul's saying Christian freedom has limits, the resurrection has implications, and the body has a purpose. Your body is meant to glorify God. Let me say a couple things in conclusion. Just some things for you to think about as you think about your own life. First thing I want to say this is that Paul identifies in this text both the sinful deed and the theology or the worldview that's underwriting the sinful deed. He's not just confronting what they're doing. He's confronting what they're thinking because what they're thinking relates to what they're doing. What they're believing is producing what they are doing. He could have just told them, hey, stop visiting these prostitutes. But that's not what he does. He's not just interested in their deeds, but also in their hearts, in the, in the beliefs that are underwriting those deeds. And there was a worldview in play in Corinth that was cutting against the gospel. And so Paul sought to identify the deficiencies of that worldview and to confront them. And I just want to say, that's the kind of thing, that, the kind of confrontation we need to experience. What kind of false beliefs do you have that may be underwriting your sexual sins? What kind of rationalizations that are foreign to Scripture and to the gospel are you cherishing that are underwriting sexual sins in your life? And, and keep in mind... When it comes to sexual sin, sexual sin is not just deeds, it's desires, right? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, anybody who looks upon a woman to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ten commandments. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number ten, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. It's not just the deeds, it's the desires underwriting the deeds. 
What kind of beliefs are driving desires and deeds in your life? What, kind of the, what kinds of rationalizations do you need to confront? So Paul's identifying sinful deed and the theology and the worldview and confronting them. Second thing I'll say is that Paul recognizes that sexual holiness involves physical bodies. Paul understood the moral consequence of the body. We need to understand the moral consequence of the body in the order of God's creation. We're not platonically divided between soul and spirit and body so that the gospel just relates to our hearts or our souls and not to our bodies. In Scripture, human beings are embodied creatures. God's plan for redemption involves the whole person, not just the soul. Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So sexual holiness is not just merely a state of mind, but a matter of the body. God intends the body to be his temple, a place where his glory is uniquely set on display. And our beliefs about sexuality will account for our actions as they are carried out in male and female bodies. That's the point. Third thing, Paul confronts Corinthian error by talking about the purpose of sexuality. That's the main point here. He says it in verse 20, glorify God with your body. Paul could have just given them commands, but he doesn't do that. He points them to the glory of God. Fourth thing, I will say by way of uh, conclusion, is that Paul believes the purpose of sex is defined by Scripture, not by the world. Paul was confronting unbiblical, ungodly, worldly ideologies, and so are you and I. Right now, you are being told that if it feels good, do it. And we're being something, told something more than that. If it feels good, or whatever you desire is what you are. To deny your desires is to deny your identity. It's harmful, in other words, to deny what you desire. I'm just here to tell you that that kind of identity um, ideology is foreign to Scripture and is actually standing against Scripture. Scripture is tearing that down. It is true that you often desire things that feel quite natural to you, but just because it feels natural doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't mean that it's what God created you to be and to feel even. And so many things that come natural to us, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to save us from so that they wouldn't feel natural to us anymore. Paul was confronting ideologies that were standing against Scripture. And he's saying, look, the purpose of our sexuality is defined by Scripture, not by the world. And we have to believe Scripture. We have to believe what God has revealed. And this is an essential part of Christian discipleship. Do not forget what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, idolaters, sexually immoral, homosexuals. He goes through this whole list, but he includes sexual immorality. He says the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived about this. This is an essential part of Christian discipleship. And we need the Lord's grace to get this right.
Now, let me say this. When you read what Paul's saying here, it can become burdensome because you immediately become aware of all the different ways that you fall short of this. Listen, Jesus said that his commands are not burdensome to us. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. And the, God, and the reason that's the case is because God has made provision for all the ways that we failed in these areas. Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins that we've committed sexually. There really is forgiveness and redemption and release from these things. That is really true. The good news also means, though, that there is power to overcome and not to be enslaved to these things anymore. Also, with the forgiveness and the redemption comes the power to walk in holiness and to grow. And you don't have to be this year what you were last year. You can change and progress and grow. And the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit will underwrite that faithfulness in your life. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would sanctify us entirely, spirit, soul, and body complete. Father, I pray that you would not let us be dominated by sexual sin and that you would not let us believe rationalizations for our sin, but that you would help our hearts and our minds to be captured by Scripture, to believe you, to trust you, and to walk faithfully in holiness and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Father, we need this. We need your help in this. And I pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.